You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the Freedom Pact. Welcome back to the show, my friends. We are in the middle of a global pandemic. I hope that you, your family, your loved ones, your friends, I hope all of you are safe. But what concerns me is that whilst there's been such a great focus on saving physical health, we're socially isolated from the people and the activities that we love. Gyms are closed. And there's a lot of stress over whether our physical and our safety needs are going to be met. Cue Professor Andrew Huberman. At Huberman Lab on Instagram, Andrew's a neuroscientist and tenured professor at Stanford School of Medicine. Andrew has made numerous contributions to the field of neuroscience, particularly for brain development and brain plasticity. In this episode with Andrew, we discuss the brain, how it's been affected by the pandemic. We discuss the rise in internet pornography and TikTok during this time, what it's doing to our brains, as well as practical evidence-based tools to aid with things like stress, how to sleep better, the neuroscience of gratitude, and how to rewire our brains in the midst of everything that's going on. So before we delve into this fantastic episode, I want to give a big shout out to you, the listener. After nearly three years, our friends at Chartable have now informed us that we have officially made it to the top 100 of every global podcast chart. So this includes number one in many of the categories. So I cannot thank you enough for tuning in week in, week out. And from the bottom of my heart, it means so much. And, you know, let's keep up this momentum. So without any further ado, please enjoy this deeply insightful conversation with the incredible Dr. Andrew Huberman. Thanks so much for having me. Really looking forward to the conversation. You give this great line from, I believe it was a talk out in Germany, and you said that when it's all said and done, your goal was to leave behind tools and not concepts, nor ideas. So let's just start with that. So when you look at your journey, your progression, what would you say that your goal is within this field of neuroscience? Well, First of all, thanks for uh, asking that question because I think that's the question that I try and keep in the front of my mind and in front of my eyes every day. And sometimes it drifts a little bit um, because there's so many things to do. But ultimately, what I'm really interested in is trying to understand how this thing we call the brain and nervous system and this body that we have, how they work together. So I want to I want to gather knowledge 
then I want to organize that knowledge into principles, into ideas of how things work, and of course test those because I'm a scientist. And then the third part of the goal is really to distribute tools. And my obsession with tools, and the reason I said what I said in that interview was based on the fact that you know, language morphs over time, ideas about what's important at any one given moment might morph over time in different cultures. But ultimately, because we're all the same species and our species is operating with the same biological hardware, the same chemicals, the same cell types that we were a hundred or a thousand years ago, ultimately what I want to understand is what are the principles of how that works and how can we make it work better? And if I can contribute uh, to the invention of tools that are based on that biology, that hardware, well, then they can be implemented for centuries, potentially, long after I'm gone. So all that's to say is I like tools. You know, I, I also like working with uh, hand tools and building things. And um, there's nothing like having the right tool. And Mother Nature installed the right tools in us. But she also implanted this little riddle where we have to figure out how to work those tools. Some of them work automatically. For instance, we all know how to stress automatically. No one needs to learn how to stress. It's one of the first things we learn when we come into this world. But we have to learn how to calm ourselves. And there are biologically based ways to do that. They're not hacks. You know, I, I don't like the concept of hacks because a hack implies that it's a that you're hijacking something and using it for something else. It's like using a wrench as a hammer. It can work, but it's not right for the, it's not really correct for the job. What I'm interested in is figuring out what are the hammers in the nervous system? What are the wrenches? What are they used for? How to use them in what sequence for the sorts of things that humans want? The ability to calm ourselves, the ability to focus, have clarity of action, um, motivation, these kinds of things, because that's what the nervous system and brain were designed for. So basically, in, in very briefly, if I had to be succinct about it, I, I want to leave tools because tools are useful. Ideas are helpful. Tools are useful. And I'm so excited to delve into those with you today. So for a bit of context for our audience, I was introduced to you, Andrew, through the Instagram Live that you did with Professor David Sinclair. David was on the show on episode 58, I believe. He came on to discuss anti-aging. Just on a side note, I encourage people to Google Andrew because, I mean, you look phenomenal for your age. Uh, uh, well, th thank you for the kind words. Um, <laughs> I, well, I, I know David a bit and I'm an, very much an admirer of his work, both his laboratory work and his bigger mission um, related to aging as a disease as well as his efforts in public education, you know. Um, so I want to tip my hat to David and his team for the incredible work and efforts that they're providing. Um, I, at this stage of my life, um, I'm not supplementing specifically uh, for with the goal in mind, of uh, taking supplements specifically with the goal in mind of longevity, you know, but I got interested in athletics pretty young. I grew up skateboarding and playing uh, soccer. I guess over there you call it football. Um, and swimming, and I ran a little cross country in high school, which is basically long distance running, um, and this sort of thing. I've always liked having some physical activity, not every day, but I do about five days a week. Um, I've always liked to eat well. I like good food. 
Um, and I've always liked, you know, when I could, I slept a lot less when I was younger. I used to push very, very long hours. I still push very long hours, frankly, but I've learned to emphasize rest. I think that that combination of things over time is really helpful for um, setting the rate of development and aging. And the other one is to do what I love. I, I am in bliss. There are challenges and stressors throughout my day. Don't get me wrong. My life is filled with um, pain points and punishment, punishment, um, from, uh, periodic punishment, in fact, just based on the challenges I've embraced. But um, the fact of the matter is when uh, when you do what you love, you're you're driven from a source where I really believe it, it has this release, po- it stimulates the positive release of a lot of neurochemicals. And that's not just uh, new agey science. I mean, we can talk about this, but the regular periodic release of molecules like dopamine and serotonin for that matter and some of the um the different chemicals in the body that make you feel good and sleep well and look forward to things um i think is a tremendous uh, asset that anyone can embrace so yeah i try and take good care of myself because also i want to go a very long time that's my intention yeah it's so interesting that you mention stanford because i just wrapped up an interview a couple of days back with kelly mcgonigal oh yeah who is a health psychologist from Stanford. And that was a phenomenal interview. So we speak to a lot of people from these top research institutes. But man, there must be something in the water over <laughs> over with you guys. Because the people from there, they seem to be killing it. It is an amazing place. I mean, there, there are many, many exceptional universities around the world. Well, one reason I, um, you know, I trained at Stanford and then I was recruited back to Stanford later uh, to run my lab. Um, one reason I love Stanford so much is the the spirit of innovation. And people are genuinely nice. You know, um, people are driven by a desire to discover and to share the things that they discover. And it has a very strong engineering component. And that actually drives many of us to think about this uh, this notion of tools and providing things for the outside world. We really believe that you know, it's what goes on inside the university is important, but ultimately it's what you export in the form of knowledge and tools that's really valuable. So it is a wonderful place. Were you um, ever to be over here um, across the pond, I guess you say, please uh, do come by. I'd love to host you in my laboratory. We have a lot of fun uh, toys and tools, um, VR tools and things to explore the human mind. And um, it is a wonderful place and the people are wonderful. I, I couldn't be luckier. Ah, that's so kind. Yeah, I can think of a few people which comes to mind. Yourself, Kelly, uh, I think Justin Sonnenberg is uh, there as well. So, oh, yeah. As he's know. right upstairs from, from me. Oh, Justin's wow. uh, right above my right above my lab. Yeah, he's, uh, he's on the third floor. I'm on the second floor. Wow, that's, that's amazing. So just in regards to your specific field, this is a show for the curious-minded, so let's delve into this a bit. So... When I think about this topic, I think it would be a great place to start by just delving into some context about the brain. So when I was preparing for this, I was thinking about some of the roles that the brain plays, right? I guess that it controls behavior, uh, it handles our perception of the world around us, and then I suppose there's also the analytical function, you know, so Mm -hmm. we can learn, study, etc. So I wonder... Just what is the role of the brain? Yeah, great question and a great place for us to kind of dive into the biology. So there are really five things that the brain 
and nervous system do. And I, I say nervous system as well. The nerve, the, the nervous system includes the brain, but also includes all the neurons, which are just nerve cells in the spinal cord and all the connections that the brain and spinal cord, uh, which together make up what's called the central nervous system, the, all the connections they make with the body. So there are five things that the nervous system does. First of all, it controls sensation. Sensation is the conversion of physical events in the world around us into neural events into and when i say neural events the i mean the language of neurons is electricity and chemicals and i don't want to go down a deep dive of, of cellular biology of neurons but basically those that's the only language that occurs inside your your brain it doesn't speak syllables it speaks electricity and chemical release mm. and there is a language to it so when i say it translates the physical events in the universe it, what i mean is you have neurons that reside very close to the edge of your body. So in the retina of your eyes, for instance, that convert photons, light energy, into electrical signals and chemical signals. And then your brain unpacks those in this amazing way, kind of like Morse code, and creates understanding and perception of images, like whose face you're looking at and um, what color a car is and this sort of thing. That You've got Neurons in your nose that that are activated by volatile chemicals meaning chemicals that travel through the air and you inhale them and then you sense their chemical composition and it converts their chemical composition into an electrical chemical signal that then your brain says oh that's the smell of uh, baked bread or that's the smell of something putrid it just does that right which is amazing and so you do this for sound waves for touch um, and physical um, forces for you know, taste and, and so forth. And so ultimately sensation is a fixed non-negotiable aspect of your brain and nervous system. In other words, you have these receptors and the universe has these physical elements. And depending on which receptors you have in your nervous system, you can detect some of those and not others. For instance, a pit viper can detect infrared emissions. It can see the heat that organisms are giving off. We don't have those re receptors in our eyes, so we don't sense them. Now, the second thing that the brain and nervous system does is it is responsible for perception. Perception, or perceptions, I should say, are the sensations that you are attending to. So nervous systems have this ability to focus their attention or shift their attention, and all that really is is highlighting which sensations are occurring and harnessing or devoting more energy to those. So for instance, if I say, what does it feel like? Um, you know, what is the sensation of your feet against the bottom of your shoes or against the floor right now? You can think about that, but you probably weren't thinking about the contact of your feet to the floor a moment ago. Right. But once I say that your perception shifts there, but the sensations are always bombarding us. Okay. We're just filtering them. There are areas of the brain, such as the thalamus and others, which are responsible for essentially removing most of that input and only spotlighting a little bit. And this becomes important later when we, if, if and when we talk about neuroplasticity. So I assume that that would be because if we were aware of all of our senses, our brain would just be massively overwhelmed with information, right? That's right. And actually, um, this is an opportunity for me to highlight one of my... Um, uh, it's not a pet peeve, but I like to kind of knock down common myths about the brain, pr provided that they um, open up 
new understanding. And one of the myths that's really irritating to all neuroscientists is this idea that we only use 10%, 10% of our brain. brain. <laughs> and, that that, and that that's a bad thing. And that that's yeah. a bad thing. That's a great thing. That's called focus. That's called the ability to make plans and execute them. Um, think about like muscles. Uh, you would never hear a muscle physiologist or an, or an athletic coach say, you know, team, it's really unfortunate. We're only using 10% of our muscles at any one time. If you used 1%, uh, if you contracted 100% of your muscles at any one time, you would be in a state of, of uh, tonic, I, you know, contraction. You wouldn't be able to do anything. When, when more of the brain is active than needs to be at any one period of time, what that's called is epilepsy. That's an epileptic seizure. Wow. So there are some drugs and some substances, um, that disrupt sensory gating in the thalamus. Um, some of the more prominent uh, psychedelics like psilocybin and, uh, and LSD, because of the way they adjust the activity of serotonin receptors, they tend to cause sensory blending where people hear colors and you know see sounds and that kind of thing. And that's because of a, uh, a disruption in the amount of activity that's being allowed into our conscious perception at once. And people who have synesthesias uh, which are the blending of sensations in kind of unusual ways, um, experience a little bit of that, although not in such dramatic fashion. So um, that's right. We, you know, we don't really want a ton of brain or nervous system activated at any one time. We want the ability to shift our perception in a way that's adaptive. So we've, we've got sensation, perception, then there are feelings and emotions, and those are a little bit vague, but those are really, they really boil down to this system, which is a beautiful system, which is about autonomic arousal, which is really this system that is kind of a push-pull between alertness and sleepiness. And there's a huge continuum there, but you know, the ideal waking state is alert and calm for most things. And the ideal sleep state is asleep, you know, but this system also is the one that puts us in people into comas. It's the one that makes us stress when we need to be very alert, etc. So feelings tend to anchor around the autonomic nervous system. So we've got sensation, perception, feelings, which are also emotions. Then there are thoughts. And this is where it gets a little bit more abstract. But thoughts are perceptions, but they're embedded in our knowledge of the past and our anticipation of the future. So this is where the memory systems come into play. And then the final thing is actions. And you mentioned this earlier, and that was very astute of you, that the nervous system, probably its original job, its oldest job across organisms was to initiate action and to do that in an adaptive way. So we've got sensations, perceptions, feelings, thoughts, and actions. That's five things. And I'll just mention that those five things are leveraged to do something very powerful that involves a comparison between what's going on in the outside world, something we call exteroception, so perceptions about what's going on in the outside world and what they mean, and then interoception, how we feel inside, how alert am I compared to what's demanded of me right now? How sleepy am I to, you know, if I need to go asleep, right? If it's time to go to sleep. And then it links those two and it makes decisions about what to do so that if you're sleepy and you need to be awake, you might get a cup of coffee. If you have a goal and a plan and you're, um, and you evaluate your current status in route to that plan, you're going to do other things. So basically the nervous system is designed to move us and everything else is to, su to support that. From an evolutionary standpoint, remember each, every organism is trying, whether or not it's a virus or it's a, it, it, which is unconscious or it's a mammal, which like a human, which is conscious is trying to 
develop plans and execute those plans and to keep the species going, whether or not it's reproduction or it's just building tools. So that's bit, that's basically um, evolutionary neurobiology and systems neurobiology in, in a nutshell. Just to break down there a synopsis or the idea that we only use 10% of the brain is a myth. The brain is responsible for sensations, perceptions, feelings, thoughts, and actions. And the evolution of the brain, I imagine that um, from what studies I've seen, that we have a real tendency towards the negative. So I suppose we could link this into the context of COVID-19 if we're, say, I'm not sure, eight, nine, ten times more likely to focus on negative aspects than positive aspects. I suppose in uh, thousands of years ago, that would have meant that we would have been more vigilant, right? We wouldn't have been complacent. We wouldn't have been killed. We wouldn't have starved. So I suppose the unfortunate bit about that is that <laughs> the brain doesn't make us feel great all the time, right? Which, you know, which is a very inconvenient of it. Um, so I suppose in the context of that, what is happening to our brains or what has been happening to our brains in the context of this COVID-19 pandemic? Uh, great question. So, you know, the stress system is fundamental to all species. Now, species like humans that can move, that can run and walk and, and shift, have created a system in, and it is based in the nervous system, like brain, spinal cord, and connections with the body, and back again to the brain, that is designed to mobilize us. So when, when something changes in our environment, the nervous system, if we perceive that change, so something new shows up in our visual environment, or we have the understanding that there might be a, a deadly virus, or, a, or at least a virus that can make people ill traveling around, it is designed to cue us as a whole system that something is different in the environment and therefore we need to behave differently. So one of the main roles of these stress hormones like cortisol and adrenaline is to place our body into a mode of slight agitation and as you pointed out, vigilance. To cue us that things are different now than they were a moment ago. And this is a ancient hardwired system that was not designed to protect us from saber-toothed tigers alone. That's always the, the example that's given. Or, you know, I don't know how often humans were hunted by tigers or by bears for that matter. I mean, this system, uh, certainly it, it happened, but this system was designed to mobilize us, for instance, when we haven't um, had enough water. First, we get agitated long before we get uh, lethargic because it was designed to move us toward the pursuit of water. When we're hungry, it was designed to make us feel agitated and kind of irritable because if we felt calm and okay with that, we would starve to death and our offspring would starve to death. So the stress system, as we call it, was not designed to protect us as much as it was designed to mobilize us. And that starts with an internal sense that something's not right and that we don't feel good in the position that we're in. It creates a, a very low level of trembling. It does that by activating premotor neurons, which are just neurons that stimulate the neurons that stimulate the muscles. So the feeling of stress is a very generic one that nature wired into us to make us move from the place that we're in to a new place, as opposed to the systems and, bi of, and biological cells and chemicals of our body and nervous system that were designed to make us feel calm when we have what we need, right? And to sleep. So, so right now with the 
the fact that there is this global pandemic and it's being handled different ways, different places, but it is stressful for most, most all people, I think. We are in heightened state of vigilance. So what's happening is a few things. First of all, we've all shifted what's called our serial processing. Our serial processing is anytime we have to think about the contingencies between things and we have to make plans in a very deliberate way. And that occupies and requires a lot of neural energy, mainly from the forebrain. We have to think about things. Normally I get up, brush my teeth, I drink some water, might stand outside for a few minutes, get some sunshine, pet my dog and move through my day. Now I have to think about whether or not I need groceries. And if I need groceries, what that's going to involve, do I, am I going to wear gloves? When I'm going to go, I'm going to stand in line. All these things that normally were passed off as kind of subconscious behaviors, we now have to think about. Mm-hmm. We have to do a lot more action planning. And so that's taxing people's, um, what's called executive function, the planning and sequencing of things, which is a huge capacity of the human brain, a very powerful capacity. But that's often why people are feeling a little bit more tired, and a little more vigilant. So the other thing that's happening, and I think people will be relieved to hear this, is that when the nervous system gets stimulated in this kind of stressful way, it signals the immune system to be more active as well. You know, it is true that when stress is elevated for very long periods of time, it can deplete the immune system. But most people have had the experience of working very hard at some point, whether or not it was in school or athletics or taking a trip with friends or caring for a loved one and you go, 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 go. And then you finally rest and then you get sick, right? And that's because the immune system doesn't just respond to foreign chemicals that, that we ingest or viruses that make it into our nose, et cetera. The, the nervous system informs the organs of the immune system to crank out more white blood cells to protect us. And this makes sense. In a famine, you can't afford to get sick and, and slow down. So stress of the sort that we're experiencing now is actually giving our immune system a boost. Now, you don't want it to be chronically elevated. You don't want to be stressed out all the time. And it is somewhat unpleasant because of this agitation it creates. But the good news is that there's a, a positive function to having a, a low level of stress. It can really buffer you against uh, foreign um, bacteria and viruses, of that, uh, et cetera. So that's happening. However, there are a number of things that are also happening, and I could go down any one of these rabbit holes, so I'll just mention two of them. Stress changes the way we breathe, which changes the oxygen and carbon dioxide exchange in our body. It changes, our obviously, our posture and our, our musculature. It makes us tense. But stress also changes our visual system. There's a very immediate reaction when we're more vigilant, which is that the pupils of the eyes dilate, okay, like the aperture on a camera. And what that does is that actually changes the optics of our visual system so that we're able to pay attention to specific things in our environment and we don't see as much of the other events in our environment. It also tends to shift our perception of time so that we're more thinly slicing time. If you're ever waiting for a test result and it's a little, and it's an important result or Um, You send a text and you you need a response back critically. It seems like time passes very slowly. So you're slicing time more thinly. You're looking at the details of time in terms of time perception, more more fine-grained analysis. So stress is changing the way that we're looking at the world. It's changing the way that we're interacting with the world as well as the world changing the way that we're feeling on the inside. So it's a, it's a loop, right? Stress changes the way we perceive things, which changes the way that we interact with the world and so forth. And so right now we are in an altered state 
And there are things we can do to introduce more calm in a, in a healthy way and still get the positive immune effects of this low level stress. But, and we can discuss those if you like, but right now the entire planet is in a heightened state of vigilance and we should just know that our bodies, our nervous systems were designed to handle things just like this and to solve them, to work out the challenges that we're trying to work out. It's just, there are a lot of new contingencies. There's a lot of things can't go back to the way they were right away. And, but we, more than anything, the human brain is an adaptive machine. It was designed to handle things just like this. Stress is the cue that something needs to be handled. And then we work it out. We, we try different things. We, um, develop tools, some work, some don't. We improve on the ones that that work somewhat and and so forth, and we discard of the ones that don't. But that's what the human brain was designed to do. So this is the largest human neurobiological experiment on stress that's ever been carried out. Mm. It's unfortunately not a voluntary one, but it's happening. Wow. So we know from that that we are in uh, an altered state. We know that our serial processing has shifted. I think that anyone that is listening to this i would carefully say would be trying to use this as an opportunity for growth right so i think this would be a great place to bridge this now onto neuroplasticity so we've just touched on um some context about the brain we've talked about what's happening so this idea of neuroplasticity i'm uk based there was a phenomenal study done into, um, I believe it was uh, taxi drivers in the UK. Oh yeah, where they found famous the study. Hi- yeah. yeah, the hippocampus had just uh, blew, uh, ballooned up in comparison to uh, before Google drivers. Maps. Yeah, before Google Maps. Yeah. Um, right. So I know that when it comes to neural plasticity, you have this term. Uh, I believe is self-directed adaptive plasticity which I believe is the term you use uh, for rewiring our brain for good. I suppose before we give people the tools and before we look at the individual tools for things like, as you mentioned, stress, for sleep, for breathing, for gratitude, for all these other things, I wonder, could you just sort of touch on the basic key principles of this self-directed adaptive plasticity and then how the brain forms those connections? I'd be happy to. So one of the most fundamental and really wonderful aspects of this thing we're calling the nervous system is its adaptive feature. It's a its ability to change in response to experience. So remember earlier we talked about the fact that these that the brain does these five things, but then ultimately those five things are leveraged in different proportions in order to focus on our internal state what's going on in the outside world and to link those things and to adaptively behave in response to those. That's really what feelings are about. That's really what plans are about. And the brain has the ability to carry out plans, but it also has the ability to create new maps, to create new plans. And this is what makes the brain such a magnificent machine, if you even want to call it a machine. Humans, unlike every other species on the planet, have plasticity, this ability to change our brains throughout the lifespan. A honeybee learns how to do everything a honeybee is going to do in the very early phase of its life. And the honeybee biologists would argue there's some learning later in life, but it is nothing like the human capacity to learn new things later in life. 
a dog can learn things up to eight months very easily. After eight months, it gets harder. Yes, you can sort of teach an old dog new tricks, but any dog trainer knows that it's much easier to do when the animal is young. That's why seeing eye dogs are trained essentially from the moment they come out of the, out of the womb. So the idea is in humans, or not the idea, I should say, you know, a Nobel Prize was given to my scientific great-grandparents, David Hubel and Torsten Wiesel, for showing that there are these things they call sensitive periods, phases of early development where the brain is more plastic and very amenable to change just in response to passive experience. Now, in humans... It depends on what sort of learning you're referring to, but in general, this happens from about birth until about age 25 or so. Children can learn languages, new words very fast. Young kids can learn to speak four languages without an accent if they're exposed to those languages. They still have to try, but there's a lot of passive learning taking place. Motor learning happens. Kids start to crawl. They make the effort to crawl and then to walk regardless of being told that, right? So the nervous system is pre-programmed to teach itself in, in response to what's going on in the world, how, what it needs to know. And so that d developmental plasticity is massive and very, very fast. And it doesn't shut closed just, you know, like a, like a door slam at age 25, but it tapers off as we get older. As we get older, however, we can still learn new things, but there are some principles of neuroplasticity that become important. And the reason I use this phrase, self-directed adaptive plasticity, is that I want to distinguish the plasticity that I'm referring to uh, as adaptive, meaning it's something that you want, as opposed to maladaptive plasticity. Because if you suffer a brain injury, there's plasticity, but it's not of the sort you want. So adaptive is a key word. And then self-directed. What we know is that while children can be taught things just by mere exposure, Adults, all of us, and your listeners, they, if they want to learn something, they have to direct it to themselves. In other words, you can't force someone to change. They have to want that change. Now, the good news is if you want that change, you can make it happen by harnessing two principles. Self-directed adaptive plasticity is based on the experimental data from many different laboratories that if we focus on something meaning a high at level of vigilance and attention, then we trigger neuroplasticity. Now, there's a chemical basis for this. In general, alertness and attention and vigilance are governed by the presence of a, a molecule in the brain and body called adrenaline, which in the nervous system is called noradrenaline. It's the same thing, but it does. it's called two different things, depending brain or body. Attention has many different underlying factors, but one of the main ones is a, is a molecule, a neuromodulator in the brain called acetylcholine, which allows us to create a kind of bright spotlight on one specific location in space. If we're reading text or something, or, um, or we're listening to something and we're listening very, uh, very sharply to that one thing and learning that language or listening to what somebody is saying, because it's important and we're learning, then that attentional spotlight is governed in large part by acetylcholine. So those two things together, adrenaline and acetylcholine, mark neur neurons. Literally, they, they create a little chemical tag on the neurons that are responsible for that listening or that looking, or if it's a motor skill, that behavior. And they mark it, and then later, under states of deep relaxation, in particular sleep, but also other states of deep relaxation, 
other chemicals come in, they recognize those neurons, literally physical entities in your brain and body. They recognize that those ones were marked as needing to change. And it's as if a construction crew comes in the middle of the night and creates cement around those connections and wires in new electricity and new chemicals so that those pathways are more likely to be re-engaged again automatically at a later time. Mm. And so it's really the marking and the triggering of plasticity happens in these states of high alertness and high attention and high vigilance. And then during deep rest, those connections are modified so that you don't need that high attention and vigilance in the same way at a later time. So when we say we, when, and I've said this a few times, um, saying right now we are in a heightened state of plasticity, meaning the vigilance is there right? Stress has introduced this, this vigilance. The opportunity for plasticity is there. None of us are going to forget this episode of our lives one way or another, but our whole brain and nervous system are cued for plasticity. So depending on what we attend to, how much attention we pay to news events versus language learning versus new motor skill, new learning, um, new cognitive skills, we, we have this gift and this opportunity right now to pack enormous amounts of new information into our nervous system. And some of that is going to be perhaps negative information coming from the news. Although as adults, we can filter that, right? We can say, well, I don't want those changes. This is the self-directed part versus, wow, you know, this feels like a terrible situation, but my nervous system is in a state where I can, I can change it for the better in other dimensions too. So right now we are in a heightened state and a heightened opportunity for self-directed adaptive plasticity. And, and this is not just, you know, painting um, silver lining on things. This is a real neurobiological, neurochemical opportunity that, again, Mother Nature wired into us for conditions like these. Yeah, I find that fascinating about how we could uh, use things like focused attention and sleep to rewire our brain. I suppose the opposite of adaptive would be maladaptive. So before each episode, we always put out feelers to sort of see what the mood is. You know, we ask our audience for a mailing list. We interact with people on Instagram. I ask friends, family. And to me, it seems like a lot of people right now are in a state of high iPhone screen times. This emergence of this app TikTok. I mean, some someone showed me that in one day they'd been on it. They'd had a four-hour screen time on TikTok, <laughs> which is just this crazy super stimuli of, of, I mean, just dopamine firing everywhere. I've got other friends that are living alone that have told me that they've been spending mass amounts of time watching Pornhub and pornography, which... You know, I mean, I, I've got family members that yep. listen to these, so, you know, I, I can't comment on my own mm -hmm. involvement. Um, but, but yes, but, <laughs> but I can certainly empathize with them. The human mind, the human brain craves sensory input. That, that's a beautiful feature of, of how we're built. We, we are not content to just sit on a rock like a barnacle. We have these limbs we want to move. We have a, a forebrain which wants to think and plan. You know, many anxious people just need more to do. And right now they've been deprived of more to do and to think about. And then of course, most of the, you know, the, the news channels, and I'm not anti news channels. I think they, they're mixed in their quality of course, but they provide a valuable service also. Um, they are, are built to 
give us the stuff that flags our vigilance the most because they're all competing for our attention. So right now we're seeking attention in screens, in iPads and, and laptops and phones because in large part we don't have the opportunity to go get um, we're not, uh, sorry, not seeking attention, see, seeking sensory information because we can't get that from daily life as easily. So the real key is to be a selective filter on what information is coming in. But there are some ways in which we're interacting with these devices that are making us even more stressed. So when you stare or you just look, staring makes it sound kind of zombie-like, but it, when you just look at a screen at short distance, meaning, you know, 8, 12, inches away, two feet away, your eye is focusing on that focal plane. And because you're not getting any long distance viewing, your eyes are sort of getting locked at that distance and, and interacting with your brain in a way that's setting a higher level of vigilance and attention. So it's a kind of positive feedback loop on stress. I, I, I know we were going to talk about tools a little bit later, but I highly recommend that anyone and everyone and this is true before the pandemic, but especially now, try and look at a distance, certainly not at a screen, but look as far off into the distance for a few minutes each day. First of all, it's going to relax what's called the accommodation feature of your eye. It's going to really relax your eye muscles and your forehead muscles that can lead to tension headaches. It's going to allow your pupils to adjust their size to more, um, a little bit and to kind of rebound to a relaxed state. There's also a another property of looking out into the distance. Ideally, you would get outside and view a horizon or, or just walk along and not look at your phone. If you have to do it from uh, your apartment you can or home, you can look out a window. Try and look as far off as possible because it changes also your perception of time. And this is not an imagined thing. You know, when you look at something at very fine scale up close, with the spatial detail that you're examining it translates into your time perception where you start measuring time in very detailed ways also. That's just the way the visual system controls the rest of the brain. So when you look at a distance, you also start generating a different time perception, which is going to tend to relax your nervous system overall. So looking at the horizon isn't just about the the sunset or looking at the beautiful seashore. It's It's not just about what you see. It's the actual mode of viewing that you're in that can really help relax the nervous system. And people just need to do this a few times a day. And I think we've all dove in deeply into these devices at, you know, twice the frequency, three times the frequency we were before, and it was already high. So these are simple cost-free practices that are, are again, they're, they're anchored in what we call visual neuroscience, but they, and my laboratory works on exactly these issues, but um, they're very straightforward. Break away from the devices from time to time and, and look off in the distance. There is a saying that I've heard over and over and over again on the show, and that is, the neurons that fire together, wire together. So the more that we enforce certain pathways and behaviors, the more likely that we are to keep repeating them, good or bad, right? So I guess, would your fear be that instead of firing positive pathways and habits, like gratitude like exercise um self-love connection personal development that we enforce maladaptive or bad habits we mentioned some like tiktok pornography heavy screen time um drinking all these other things which are maladaptive i know that you define addiction 
as a progressive narrowing of the things that bring you pleasure. So this time, this pandemic, where we have the opportunity to form these habits, these new behaviours and pathways, is the worry that it could be used to form bad habits or potentially even addictions when this is all over. Yeah, um, yes. The The fact of the matter is that neurons that fire together, meaning that are repeatedly active, do tend to wire together over time. Um, that quote, neurons that fire together, wire together, um, was first said by my colleague and and really a, one of the great luminaries of neural development and neuroplasticity. Her name is Carla Schatz. She's uh, still a faculty member at Stanford. Her lab is still quite active and a close colleague and friend of mine. So I want to tip my hat to Carla. She's a, a marvelous scientist and colleague, a real pioneer, in fact. Um, that phrase was initially used to describe the developmental plasticity, childhood plasticity, where the behaviors that kids do the things they're exposed to get wired into their nervous system. And if some of your listeners are thinking, well, what about the negative things that, that get wired in? Are they forever there? Well, they can be removed through self-directed adaptive plasticity as adults. I always say the great gift of childhood is plasticity comes easy. The, the stinger is uh, you don't control as much of your life as you would like. So things can happen to, <laughs> that, that yeah. you wouldn't want. Hmm. As well, as you become an adult, you can control more, more of your life. But plasticity, uh, you have to work a little harder. You need that attention and then and then and joints, and then you need the deep rest to follow it. So the self-directed part. So um, right now, whether child or adult, by looking at screens all the time and and really increasing our amount of screen time, plus the fact that there are rewards, and we'll talk. Uh, perhaps now is a good time to layer in a discussion about dopamine rewards. There are rewards being introduced to some of that behavior from the side of the likes or um, social engagement, you know, things that, that make sense based on our desire to be part of groups and to be liked. Uh, no one wants to be hated. Maybe, maybe some people want to be hated, but it, those people are really just want to be liked by the other haters, in my opinion. Wow. Um, <laughs> so, you know, we're a social species. We want those things. So they're rewards that are layered into these different electronic platforms. I mean, you mentioned uh, pornography, right? Pornography is a is a late uh, uh, human evolution invention, right? There weren't even screens, you know, that is leveraging the heart, the biology of reward chemicals that were designed for reproduction for for sex and lay, and putting them into a format where people are getting this, the chemical release without. Um, without reproduction, right? Without the standard reproduction. We probably don't want to go too far down that pathway, but I think it's obvious to your listeners what, what, what I mean here is that it's a yeah. technology that hijacks the biology, okay? Now, that doesn't mean it's wrong. I'm not here to make moral judgments. I'm, um, although there are some, some data that excessive pornography can, can have negative effects on the reward systems of the brain. So let's talk about those. So the reward systems of the brain are mainly centered around two chemicals. The chemicals are dopamine and serotonin. There are others, of course. There's the endogenous opioid system. These are opioids that don't come in the pill form, but that you make your, in your brain. There's the cannabinoid system that you make neurons that make cannabinoids and so forth. But dopamine is really the the main player, and serotonin is the other main player. And it's it's pretty straightforward. There's a great book on this if people want to check it out called The Molecule of More. But the, the I didn't write the book, but um, it's quite good that. Dopamine is famous for its role in 
reward and addiction because it is indeed the molecule that's released in our brains and that makes us feel really good when we um, win a trophy, get a degree, um, mate, eat when we're hungry, uh, drink water when we're thirsty. It's nature's way of rewarding us for for our behavior. But what a lot of people don't realize is that dopamine is also secreted in substantial amounts as we anticipate rewards in route to those rewards, not just once we obtain those rewards. Mm. And, and at its core, if you put those two facts together, that it's released in route to goals and when we reach, reach those goals, at its core, dopamine's job is to move us towards specific goals and things that are outside our immediate presence. They're not everything that's beyond the reach of our arms, right? So a goal a year from now, a goal a week from now, even, you know what, I'm hungry, I'm gonna go into the kitchen and I'm gonna make some food. It's a goal that's outside what I have contained within the confines of my skin. Serotonin and a hormone close to it, a hormone neurochemical called oxytocin, are sort of the opposite. Those are the rewards that are released and make us feel good with what we have right there and then, a sense of gratitude a relationship to somebody that's already built, a, a bond that's already established, okay? And really healthy individuals learn to control, they set up their life in a way where the dopamine system and the serotonin system are both active, although typically not at the same time. So the pursuit of all goals is what dopamine is in driving. It's like a jet thruster that puts us off in a specific direction. And when we think we're headed in the right direction, we reach a milestone, we score a goal, we um, finish an exam, we, uh, you know, we reach our gate at the airport, or at least we used to when we were traveling, this kind of thing. We, we get a little dopamine release and it says it reinforces that we're on the right path. The seroton- and so dopamine tends to mobilize us just like stress tends to mobilize us, but it gives it a positive attribute. Okay, this is very much what's active during foraging of accounts on Instagram. When you're looking and you're getting a lot of novel information, dopamine's looking for new stuff and asking. Uh, the dopamine system is is looking for new stuff and asking, is that new stuff provide providing me what I want? And it and then if you get likes or you see something that that's that, you know that you enjoy, uh, uh, whatever that is to you, you'll you'll click it. Um, the in the in the example of pornography, then it's. It's, you know, it's designed to tap into these systems at a very uh, sort of deep, what we call limbic level, the circuitry of the brain that's very primitive. Um, All those technologies are based on that. The serotonin system is what you feel when you are content with what you've got. And it tends to create, unlike dopamine, which promotes a sense of movement or desire for more. That's why it's called the molecule of more. I didn't call it that, but someone else did serotonin is more about a pleasure with things in the here and now. And it actually tends to make us feel calm. It tends to make us feel content with where we are. And that's why drugs, pharmaceuticals that are antidepressants that are called SSRIs, they selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, their net effect is to increase serotonin. If they have side effects, and some of them have side effects, if they have side effects, they tend to be side effects of lack of appetite, lack of libido, lack of drive, things like that, because serotonin is artificially elevated. And so people are content to stay where they're at. Now, they also can have, under the right conditions, positive effects for people suffering from depression and uh, various anxiety disorders. So I don't want to knock on them, but that's just their general effect. But you could contrast those drugs with drugs like amphetamine and cocaine, which strongly stimulate the dopamine system. 
And people on amphetamine and cocaine are not happy with anything that they have in the here and now. It's all about more, 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 and everything that's outside them. So I'm going to put these two um, systems, the dopamine and the serotonin system, together for you and explain that when you are engaging in a behavior over and over and over and you're attending to it, yes, the neurons are firing together and therefore are going to wire together, but that whole process is amplified tenfold, a hundredfold when you throw dopamine into the mix. So when you throw dopamine into the mix, there's a much higher probability that those circuits are going to wire up really fast and that you're going to therefore want to repeat those behaviors. It's like taking gravel roads and making them smooth roads. And then if you get a little more reward, it's like making that, taking that smooth road and making it a formula one track. Mm. And then it's like putting, and that's like putting another two cylinders in the engine. So pretty soon what we find is neuroplasticity has done its job and you're, engaging in behaviors and you're not even sure that you want to engage in those behaviors, but you feel compelled to do them. So what you've removed is the self-directed component. It felt self-directed at the beginning, but what we didn't realize is that our choices were being leveraged by the dopamine system. And then pretty soon what we realize is there's plasticity, but it wasn't self-directed. And in some cases it wasn't adaptive. And so the task then becomes to attach reward to the disengagement from those technologies, the disengagement from those behaviors. And I'll just mention addiction because I do define, and um, you got the, the, the quote exactly right, I call addiction a progressive narrowing of the things that bring you pleasure because it taps into this dopamine system. So now that statement perhaps will make some um, neurobi neurobiological sense why that's the case. So there's a narrowing of attention, more reinforcement for those behaviors. And we need to think about any behavior, drinking water, foraging on the internet, or drugs of abuse as potentially addictive. But the difference is, we have to ask, the difference among those behaviors is, what is their propensity for them to keep the baseline of our life, meaning our relationships, our relationship to self, our physical health, our mental health, flat? Or to decrease it, send it down on a pitch, or to improve it. I have to drink a lot of water before the baseline of my life starts to suffer. I could do it. I could kill myself drinking too much water. I could avoid relationships. I could you know, lose my job from drinking too much water, but I have to drink a lot of water. You don't have to do a lot of heroin or a lot of cocaine before the baseline on your life starts to really decline. With technologies like the internet and smartphones and computers, it's neither here nor there. You have some activities on the internet now are allowing us the social engagement that we crave and need and that's healthy and that we can't get by, you know, having dinners and things like that with other groups right now. But it has the potential because it's the landscape there is so vast that there are many behaviors inside of these devices that can send the baseline of our life going down, especially if we start to do this into the midnight hours and at 4 a.m. and we're texting and looking at Instagram at 4 a.m. Now, you can really say, well, sleep is, is getting injured and immunity is getting injured. My ability to think clearly and make plans during the day is being injured. And now you could look at the, that behavior and say, you know what? You're, the things that bring me pleasure are becoming progressively narrower. And my, the baseline of my life is going down. And therefore, this qualifies as a, an addiction.
by all by all definitions. But it doesn't have to be that way. The key is the self-directed part. We all are each in control of our behavior, even though sometimes it doesn't feel like it. And if we understand these reward systems and we start attaching reward to not just avoiding certain behaviors, but to new behaviors in their place, reading a book, a face-to-face conversation with a spouse, playing with your child or your dog and a, or your cat for the cat lovers out there, the, the, the ability to just attend to things and be away from these devices. And at first they might not feel as exciting they may not feel as dopi- dopamine stimulating, but over time they will and they can wire our brain and our nervous system in the other direction too so that we have this balance and this balance not just with the dopamine system and where it, what it's devoted to, but also the serotonin system. And that's where things like gratitude really become powerful. I want to emphasize gratitude is not complacency. Gratitude is the stimulation of these positive neurochemicals and that stimulation of those neurochemicals will allow you to then lean back into other activities with more vigor and more positivity. So it's not new agey science, it's it's chemical biology. So we have these self-directed uh, adaptive plasticity, which we can harness through sleep and then through this focused attention, almost like a deliberate type practice. So then we have these uh, neurochemicals, dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin. Now, the goal for us is to use these in adaptive ways. Things like, I imagine it would probably be more easier to form a negative habit than it would be to form uh, an adaptive one. For example, if I wanted to go and get fast food, I could just go and drive through McDonald's. Whereas if I wanted to go and cook a, a whole foods meal, I'd have to go and prepare the meal. I'd have to do everything like that. Um, That's right. So when you said about that we want to develop those three chemicals, dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, but we want to do them in an adaptive way. So I suppose it's like not skipping leg day for your brain, right? <laughs> so I wonder That's right. what would be maybe a practice for each of those that we could do um, you know, because we don't want to skip leg day for our brain that perhaps in the cot that we could do perhaps in the context of, uh, COVID-19. Yeah. Great question. So I mentioned, let's talk about the serotonin system first. Um, sure. because it's, it, it creates a buoyancy to our life and our, our mode of thinking that even for people that are really struggling, uh, it can provide some very rapid and substantially substantial positive effects. So gratitude, you know, for many years, gratitude uh, was discussed as this thing about just, it was almost like it implied just be grateful with what you have. But we need to remove the just part of that statement. It's about stopping for a moment. You could be even in motion, I suppose, but stopping for a moment and shifting your perception and your attention to the things that that you have something that you value could be a relationship with a, with a person or a pet. It could be the fact that you're still alive. It could be the fact that anything, anything that you are appreciative of what you're doing is you're moving into interoception. You're shifting your thinking toward what's contained within your own skin and that you have at this moment, even if it's a relationship with something that's outside the skin of your body, the, it's a relationship with something that you have. That stimulates, we know that stimulates the release of 
serotonin and at a longer time scale things like oxytocin. This works best if you think about a relationship to some person or, or some other, uh, I mentioned pet because it doesn't have to be a human being, but in general that's where it works best. And that shift provides a number of positive things. First of all, it it does increase, it's known to improve immunity. There's no question that being in those states where serotonin is released can improve immunity. Uh, there is a positive effect on other neurochemical systems and circuits in the brain, including some spillover to the dopamine system. And that spillover to the dopamine system then restores our optimism and our feeling of what's possible about what's out there in the world. The dopamine system and the serotonin system were designed to kind of work back and forth in kind of a push-pull, but they kind of pass the ball back and forth. And that dopamine trigger then makes us think that there is a future, there is possibility, because the, the fact that it is all about anticipation and the sense of more is, it's not a necessarily at appropriate levels, a greedy sense of more. So gratitude, if you do this, it's, again, gratitude is not complacency. It's shifting your brain into a mode of possibility. You, so it's, it's a little bit counterintuitive because you think if I just focus on what I've already got, how is that focused on, on possibility? But that's because it triggers the activation of these neurochemical systems that then place our attention on, okay, everything is okay internally and therefore I can focus on the external, right? Because the internal landscape and environment is okay, because my home is secure, and here I'm talking about your biological home, I can therefore focus on what's out there in the world that I want to pursue, and that's possible. We we are very much like any business or any household in that we need to take care of our internal real estate first in order to take care of the external real estate. Now, the the key to this practice and it is that the more intense that you feel that, the better, and it can take some practice. People don't necessarily get this the first time. They don't get overwhelmed with a sense of gratitude, and you're not even necessarily looking for a sense of overwhelm. Oftentimes, you're just going to do this for 10 seconds, one minute. This is a trivial amount of time in the greater scope of things, but its positive effects are, are outscaled with that time investment. And I, what I will say is that I do some work with people in very high-performing, very uh, – complicated, even chaotic type work, you know, elite military and these kinds of people, athletes, and uh, for that matter, I have friends who are neurosurgeons who have very demanding jobs where one small uh, error can, can be catastrophic. They all practice gratitude. It's a, it's, it, if ever there was a kind of secret weapon, people talk a lot about meditation nowadays and, you know, ev- you know, everybody who's a high performer meditates, that might be true, but I, I can say with some degree of certainty that people who are really high performers and that by that, I mean, people who perform well in lots of domains of their life, but exceptionally well, usually in one or two, they exercise gratitude. They have some gratitude practice that they bring in periodically throughout the day or just even once a day. Amazing, amazing. So we've got gratitude. What what other practices could we do to um, build on the other uh, neurochemicals? Yeah, so dopamine is is a very um, exciting one in this regard. So there's a there's a principle of the way that dopamine works called dopamine reward prediction error, which basically says that the amount of dopamine that's going to be released is related to how much dopamine you experienced while you were pursuing a goal versus when you reached that goal. 
So I'll give you the takeaway first. The key is to make sure that you're getting dopamine release periodically as you move toward a goal. That could be just getting through the week. That could be pursuing uh, a big uh, you know, business or sport or educational goal or, per- or personal development goal. You want to make sure that you're giving yourself rewards as you go along. And I'll explain how to do that as well as when you reach the final goal. <clears throat> if you reach the final goal and it's a little underwhelming, it's very unlikely that the circuits, the neural circuits that under that were responsible for that behavior are going to be gener- generated again or going to be reinforced. Whereas if you get a lot of dopamine en route to a goal and a lot of dopamine once you get there, there's a very there's a very strong probability that those circuits will get reinforced. And if we have time, we could talk about actually the the sort of neurochemistry of winning versus losing, if you like, wow. because it's related to this. But basically what this looks like is we've all heard the example of, oh, you, you know, how do you eat the elephant one bite at a time? The importance of chunking and breaking things down into manageable amounts. That's all fine. And that's true. But what's missing in that is the fact that there is a need, a critical need to reward milestones and that that those rewards are best delivered internally. Okay. I don't want to spin off down the path of too many research studies, but if we receive too many rewards that are external and we focus on those, the activity itself becomes depleting. It becomes exhausting. And that's because norepinephrine is secreted anytime there's effort and dopamine can buffer against that norepinephrine release. It can make what seemed impossible seem immediately possible. Uh, you've experienced this before. If ever you were in ex- immense strain or in a group and things just were not working, someone cracked a joke, everyone immediately feels a lift and a sense of possibility. That's dopamine. It's far too fast to be anything else but dopamine. It's a neurochemical works very fast to, re- to restore our sense of possibility. We need to learn how to do that for ourselves. So this could take the form of, let's say somebody wants to embrace fitness. I'll use that example because it's concrete. We've all heard, put your shoes near the door the night before. Then when you put your shoes on in the morning, just walk around the block. The next day, run around the block. The next day, run a mile, et cetera, et cetera. Pretty soon you're running marathons. What's missing in that is the fact that when when you make it around the block, you don't just want to say, oh, I made it to the end. You have to, while you're doing it, you have to tell yourself, I'm on the right path. You want to reward the process of being in action and in forward motion, not just reaching these endpoints. Okay. And this is actually, you know, it harkens back to what a different colleague of mine, um, Carol Dweck has talked about growth mindset, which is really about developing a sense that there's a possibility, but also rewarding the effort process itself. And these are, these self-generated rewards might seem a little silly, but I want to emphasize that they are not positive self-talk. Positive self-talk as it's commonly referred to is when you're telling yourself to do something or that you're doing well in relation to the very final goal. If you're losing at something or you're doing poorly, you don't want to tell yourself you're doing well. What you do want to do is say, I'm still on the ladder. I'm still in effort. I'm still leaning forward. And that's what's important. And I should feel good about that. And as you do that, you start to teach these neural circuits. You're doing, you're engaging self-directed adaptive plasticity. You're teaching these reward circuits to attach themselves to being in forward action. What a friend of mine, a former SEAL team member likes to say is, you know, the, the advice that was given to him and that he really embodies and that I've, I've uh, tried to adopt for myself is to try and keep your center of mass forward. But don't just keep your center of mass forward. Reward the fact that you're even thinking about keeping your center of mass forward. Reward the fact that you're keeping your center of mass forward. And pretty soon what you find is it's a self-amplifying process. So 
to bring this all home, reward little milestones, but reward the process of being forward going itself. But also make sure that will trigger the dopamine release that we're referring to. And when you reach the endpoints that you want to reach, and sometimes that's just crawling into bed at the end of the day and relishing in the fact that you lived through another day during a very complicated time. Sometimes it's about huge wins of the sort that, you know, we most commonly hear about in the news and in people's big life events. But toggle that, meaning also incorporate a gratitude practice. Because by doing that, you'll amplify both the dopamine system and the serotonin system. They were really designed to work in concert with one another. So I realize this can seem a little bit vague, but it was designed to be subjective. Remember, Mother Nature, just like with stress, Mother Nature gave us these reward systems for which they seem very generic, dopamine and serotonin, and they're very general, but they were designed to be applied to the nuance and the specificities of your life, and you get to decide what those nuances and specificities are, provided that you self-direct them. If you let it all be, all your dopamine and serotonin be a slave to technology or, or worse, you know, drugs of abuse, you're going to find yourself in a very complicated or even dangerous place. But when you start taking control of these neurochemicals, it really is that genuine sense of power because you're controlling your nervous system. For serotonin, we are going to start with our gratitude. For dopamine, we are going to inform ourselves that we are on our journey and give ourselves a positive positive internal reward, which is going to make us want to do it over and over. What about oxytocin? Because I can't think of one for this. I wonder, what, what, what have we got for oxytocin? Yeah, that's interesting. So um, serotonin and oxytocin are like close cousins. They work together um, to achieve the same endpoint. Oxytocin is more of a hormone than a neurochemical, and it hormones tend to work so the definition of a hormone is that it's a substance that's secreted in one area of the body that has an impact on organs elsewhere in the body. And oxytocin has effects that are on the order of hours to minutes to days. They tend to increase pair bonds of, and bonding of various kinds and associations of different kinds over long periods of time. So the oxytocin system will naturally be triggered by the serotonin system. If right. oxytocin and serotonin are close cousins, Dopamine and for males, testosterone and for females, mostly estrogen, although also testosterone are close cousins. So the testosterone system was designed to give, uh, actually is very tightly woven in neurochemically to the dopamine system. They actually are triggered from the same location in the pituitary or more or less the same location. And so mother nature has these systems. It's just that the hormone systems tend to be more slow acting. This is why, you know, there are, there are studies that have been published that show that when people achieve a big win, there's an increase in testosterone production. When they lose, there's a decrease in testosterone production. Those are triggered by dopamine. This isn't often discussed, but you know, what, how life events get translated into hormonal events is very interesting. Um, and you can now, without me having to go into a long description, you can tell why this would be the case, okay? That there, there's a, a way in which you would never want these systems to be untethered from one another. Dopamine supports testosterone and vice versa. Serotonin supports oxytocin and vice versa. I'll mention one other incentive for a gratitude practice, especially during this pandemic. There's a, a mother nature generally has a reward and she has a punishment chemical. And there's a molecule that we all make 
although we don't release it all the time, called tachykinin. It's a peptide that has been shown in organisms as low as flies and mice and as high as humans, meaning on the phylogenetic scale. The, t- the release of tachykinin is a punishment signal that lowers immunity, increases fear and anxiety, and can actually cause a kind of irritable aggression. It is not something that we want. And what's remarkable is that gratitude and social connection, as well as physical touch, provided it's positive physical touch, depletes or reduces tachykinin release. So it's incredible. You know, Mother Nature put gave us positive rewards and suppressed the punishment signals. On the dopamine side, there's a if we achieve what we want, if we're regularly giving ourselves the subjective sense that we're on the right path by being in action, not just that we're reaching goals, but that we're on the right path and that we're forward leaning this, being center of mass forward. Not only is dopamine release, not our, only are the hormones that I described before given positive uh, effects, but in addition to that, there's a pathway in the brain involving a brain structure called the habenula, H-A-B-E-N-U-L-A, which is its job is to trigger disappointment and depression. And this circuit gets suppressed when we're doing the right things. Incidentally, the habenula connects to our pancreas. It controls blood sugar. This should make good sense. If we are doing the right things, our blood sugar regulation, this is in Wu Science. This is actually the paper published in Nature earlier this year, and as well as one in the journal Cell, both phenomenal journals. Not from my laboratory, I should say. The work was done in other laboratories showing that There are punishment signals that come out of the habenula, which can disrupt our blood sugar and make us feel lousy and depressed in general when we do the wrong things. And it's all subjective. So when we do the right things, we're rewarded biologically with these positive chemicals and these depression circuits are suppressed. And Mm. perhaps that's an opportunity to just sneak one in here. If you're looking at your phone or bright lights between the hours of 11 p.m. and 4 a.m., there's a beautiful paper that was published by a guy out of the chronobiology unit at the National Institutes of Health. His name is Samar Hattar. Published this paper showing that when we look at bright lights in the middle of the night, it triggers this pro-depressive circuit. It leads to cortisol increase. It leads to heightened states of depression. And it even can lead to disrupted appetite and blood sugar regulation. So if ever you need an incentive to stay off screens between ideally 10 p.m. to 4 a.m., but you could also do 11 p.m. to 4, uh, 4 a.m. would probably be okay, stay off bright lights and screens. Don't look at them. As much as you as they are drawing us in, you're, they are a major cause of the kinds of depression and anxiety that people are feeling during the waking hours. So I suppose the only question I've got left is I've just got one reader question which was sent in before we just break off then and uh, just wrap things up and then talk about your work and where our audience can connect with you. I picked this question because this is also prevalent to me, which was something which I noticed happened in myself. I'm not quite sure what the technical term is for this, but I definitely resonate with this guy. And he said that one thing that I noticed in myself was that at the very beginning of COVID-19 that I had an insane amount of brain fog. So what is happening and what can I do about it? Yeah, that's it. Uh, I have a feeling that's happening for a lot of people. And so brain fog is really, you know, it centers back to the fact that 
the brain and nervous system are really trying to organize behavior. It's really trying to make plans, even if those plans involve staying still, uh, going to sleep or reading a book or taking a nap, uh, as well as other types of more action-oriented plans. It's trying to organize all that. And we, at the beginning of this situation in particular, we were bombarded with information and it's a very natural and healthy response to feel a sense of overwhelm, which is ba- overwhelm is basically too much sensory information and perceptions coming at you without knowing which ones to attend to, not being able to organize that into an action plan. And we were being bombarded with information about what viruses are, what they aren't, what we can do, what we can't do. There was a ton of misinformation there was the idea that we need to be vigilant not just for the viruses but for hoax about the hoaxes about the viruses i mean it was it was overwhelm in uh, exponential overwhelm and so it's a very healthy and natural response to feel discombobulated by all that information we didn't know also nowadays especially because of the internet we don't know who the experts are or if they are experts we are not being told explicitly what their biases are, right? So we don't know what incentivizes anybody. And I'm not cynical in this regard. It's just that the whole, the whole business of, of filtering information has become very, very distant from the original plan of our nervous system that we discussed early on, which was to take sensations that are coming, coming in, perceive certain ones of them, and then generate feelings, thoughts, and actions around those. And so... I think the early, you know, I hope that we're now in the middle to late phases of this uh, situation. It does seem as though that's the case. Uh, I, I can't say for sure, obviously. But what's clear is that now we realize what the response is. So as the world has taken its response, whether or not we agree with that response or not, we're starting, we can therefore separate out certain forms of information. There's certain things that we no longer have to, to even consider, like, are we going to be quarantined? Are we going to do, because it's being decided for us, right? So once we move into acceptance that certain things are off the table and are not a topic of discussion, we actually can organize our thoughts and our behaviors a lot more easily. And that brain fog tends to lift. Humans are exceptionally good at adapting to situations like this. This is certainly not the first time in human evolution we've had to do that. Um, but even at an individual scale, you know, people have been, Nelson Mandela was put into a small confined space for a very long time and had to adjust his perceptions of time and of space and what was possible and eventually the nervous system adjusts so that you find rewards, both external rewards and internal rewards, even though your world landscape has shrunk substantially. What happened at the beginning of COVID-19 is that the, the barriers on our thinking and our perceptions were just cracked completely open and, we, and it was like a, drinking from a fire hose. And the nervous system eventually, I would hope, has settled into a place now where people are more in a state of uncertainty but they're starting to filter information. They're starting to think about, okay, what do they need in terms of their daily self-care? You know, how to get good rest, how to replenish their um, sense of calm. You know, I gave a few tools along the way of looking at a distance. You know, maybe you have a meditation or a breathing practice, this kind of thing as well. Gratitude. What are the goals we can pursue? And the, the more time we spend focusing on the things that are just not within our scope of behaviors that are just 
that we can't do. I mean, there are many things right now I would like to do that I simply can't do. But by focusing my attention and making my forward actions in line with what I can do, those neurochemicals and the systems in the brain and body that are designed to create a sense of wellness, of, of well-being, they eventually pivot over. They shift over. But it does require some discipline that we not go back to drinking from the fire hose. And I think most people now are, in addition to learning a lot more about immunity and um, gaining appreciation for what we'll eventually go back to, I, I would like I would like to think, and I my hope for the audience is that they're going to find ways to be in gratitude and in pursuit, even within the confines of the restrictions that the the pandemic has brought about. So that's that's my explanation, and I realize it's not exhaustive, but um, uh, I've probably gone on long enough anyway. <laughs> Man, this has been such a pleasure. What would be one thing? that a world-leading neuroscientist would love everybody to know about the brain? What a great question. Um, I would love everyone to know about, <clears throat> excuse me, I would love everyone to know about the brain, about their brain, that it has this adaptive feature, this ability to generate self-adaptive, self-directed, adaptive plasticity. I think that when one accepts that as a hardwired feature of the way they're built, it can potentially be a game changer. And I think it needs to be accepted with the understanding that sure, negative events are going to cue our attention and do all the things that are needed to get plasticity going. And that's just the way that nature designed us to be safe. But that really this thing, this collection of cells in your skull was designed to be customized to your liking. And that that's, it is really truly a possibility. It takes some effort. It takes that focus and that sense of urgency, but then provided one rests and relax and then goes back to effort and focus and urgency, you can really harness these mechanisms. It, it really is, uh, you know, whatever your, your leanings are, you know, mother nature, evolution, God, the universe, whatever you believe, it really is the gift that we all received. And it really is something that we can leverage toward our own well-being if we apply the principles. And they're really quite simple. They take a little bit of time. But my, my hope is that people would know that they have this capacity. And then, of course, my additional wish would be that they would leverage that capacity. You mentioned the molecule of more earlier. What other books have influenced your life? Yeah, I loved, uh, and forgive me because the, the name of the author escapes me and I, I apologize, but the, maybe the book was so good that it eclipsed my uh, understanding or my re recollection of his name. But it's really quite good. Uh, I learned a lot from it. Um, it has a lot of kind of typical stories of, of how these things get played out in, in real life. And early on, that sounded a lot like uh, many other books books of, on these kinds of topics, but as the book progressed, there was, there was a real richness there and a real applic applicability uh, that I, I really thoroughly enjoyed. Um, well, the book I love, it's a, um, it's a nonfiction book, uh, and I'll grab it right now, um, that I, it, for those that are interested in science but also want to understand how science is done and the pursuit of knowledge and how the pursuit of knowledge can really transform the course of, of, of humanity is a book called Longitude by uh, an author. Her name is Dava Sobel, D-A-V-A-S-O-B-E-L. And it's a remarkable book. I don't want to give away too much about the competitive hunt 
for technologies that would allow people to keep time at sea, which is a, a non-trivial thing with uh, mechanical clocks, but it completely transformed the way that humans were able to travel and um, and have ad- adventures and explore and you know essentially establish uh, humanity across the entire planet. That's an excellent one. And then I personally really enjoy biography. And so I'll throw one in there that maybe people uh, wouldn't expect um, because that's kind of fun um, just to kind of provide some contrast is I I got a lot out of the book, uh, A Fighter's Heart. You know, I I don't suggest that everyone go out there and start doing uh, martial arts and this kind of thing. But I loved Sam Sheridan's book, uh, A Fighter's Heart. So I go... after books at all levels. I, I loved longitude. I loved the molecule of more fighter's heart was very interesting because I'm interested in the biology of these kind of primitive circuits, but also Sam's a very smart guy. I don't know him, never met him, never spoken to him, but, um, he's, he was able to weave the, this pursuit of something primitive of combat in with some kind of higher level thinking about why humans still in this day and age would would pursue that kind of behavior if they didn't need to. And again, I'm not a proponent of violence. I just, I, I found it to have a lot of uh, interesting insights as well as some great descriptions of the early days of, of MMA and some boxing uh, history and things like that. It really surprised me as a read and um, it's a fun one. So I, I, I recommend that one as well. Um, I believe the molecule of more, I think that was uh, Lieberman, Daniel Lieberman. Um, that's the one Daniel yeah. Lieberman yeah um, yeah so man I mean this has been just incredible I mean this you know wow I mean I feel my IQ was shot up about 10 points just speaking to you but <laughs> so I just got one last uh, question for you before we just talk about your upcoming stuff and this is one question we always ask just to bridge everything over if the world was ending and you could impart a short but impactful message based on your life your experiences what would you want the world to know? Yeah, it would be, um, and here I'm, I'm egregiously robbing a statement from the Oracle. Uh, the Oracle said, uh, know thyself. Um, but I'm going to say, be in constant pursuit while knowing thyself. So I'll, I'm just going to try and build on the Oracle, which, uh, I think we need to do self-examination. I think we need to understand how we work at a psychological level, at a biological level. I think it's extremely important. And everyone has that task. This power of interoception that we talked about earlier is not there on accident. We're supposed to pay attention to what's going on in the inside and make sense of that and how we do that. But I think we also each have a responsibility to be in pursuit of building tools, building knowledge, supporting communities and families and cultures. It is not sufficient to just do one or the other. We really need to do those both and we need to do those both in concert and we need to do them often. And so uh, be in pursuit while knowing thyself. Could you tell our audience about where they can connect with you and more upcoming projects or any current projects you've got which you'd like them to know about? Yeah, so um, I teach and offer up, um, cost-free of course, uh, information about neuroscience and new developments in neuroscience as they come about on Instagram, and that's Huberman Lab, H-U-B-E-R-M-A-N-L-A-B. 
uh, on Instagram. And then occasionally there I'll announce uh, a study where we've com- just completed one that we're submitting for publication, but we're going to have others that are going to be done remotely using some neurotech that's pretty exciting, looking at stress and courage and fear and plasticity and these kinds of things. Um, and so from time to time, I'll announce those studies. We actually pay our participants or we offer them uh, really cool, exciting neurotech that they can keep. Um, so there is that incentive as well. And now because of the pandemic, we're, of course, my lab is still going to be continuing our work at Stanford, but some of that work is going to be done remotely also so we can access um, greater diversity of populations in terms of the the subjects that we uh, look at and their and their brain activity. So um, check there if you want to learn more neuroscience and perhaps be a participant in the study. Um, late next, uh, sorry, late 2020, early 2021, I should have a book coming out. Um, I So I'll, maybe we can touch back around that time. Uh, it will include some descriptions of some of the things that we talked about today, uh, as well as um, a lot else about uh, neuroscience and uh, actionable steps one can take for things like creativity and focus and things of that sort. So um, I'm very excited about that project as well. And in general, if people reach out to me on Instagram, I do my best to try and answer questions about neuroscience in a timely manner. And I also I want to thank you. Uh, and I also want to thank the audience for their time and attention, which I know is extremely valuable. I don't take um, that lightly at all. So thank you ever so much to the listeners. Man, it has been our pleasure. This is a show for the curious-minded, and man, I've got literally two pages of notes that I've taken by you from this conversation, so it was just such a pleasure. Uh, I believe you are on Instagram, at Huberman Lab. For our audience listening, tag Andrew in the post when this episode goes live, and let him know what it was about this episode that you enjoyed. And man, once again, I just cannot thank you enough. I learned so, so much. Oh, well, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. You know, at laboratories and universities were cloistered away a bit. Um, even the, those of us that work hard to not do that, we, we have that tendency. So the opportunity to connect with you and with the general public is, is really a, a privilege and an honor. And thank you so much for your questions. They were, um, extremely trenchant and, um, uh, uh just really impressive questions at, at, at the level of sort of current understanding of the brain that they are the questions that of course I'm biased because these are the things my lab works on but uh, I really believe that they are uh, they really reflect the front and cutting edge of, of where brain science is at right now so thank you so much 